in this lesson, we talk about seven things that you will never forget about the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? Science, clear explanations. Class is starting now. Welcome back, everybody. For those of you who are just tuning in, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of ChrisMasterjohnPhD.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Master John, where we are now in our eighth in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism. We've been picking our part our way through the citric acid cycle to look at each detail and relate it to how the system functions as a whole and to some aspect of why each step is important to human health. And in the last lesson, we looked at the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex, which is so complex and has so much to unpack that we've saved our discussion for all the things that are important about it for today, and there are seven of them. The first is that this is an excellent demonstration of the principle of enzymatic or energetic coupling. As you can see on the screen, the decarboxylation of alpha-ketoglutarate to release one carbon dioxide has a very large negative delta G. By contrast, the succinylation of CoA to produce succinyl-CoA has a smaller positive delta G, and the reduction of NAD plus to form NADH also has a smaller positive delta G. This is a great example illustrating the principle of energetic coupling that we talked about in the first lesson, and in this case, enzymes are doing that coupling. We talked before about how in order to do something that has a positive delta G like this or this, we must have something that has a negative delta G that can fuel that, but also that negative delta G must be much bigger because we also have to release heat into the atmosphere in order to satisfy the second law of thermodynamics. Now, this positive delta G is actually the lion's share of the positive delta G for reasons that we're gonna talk about next lesson. But for now, we can simply note that two of the reactions are positive delta G, one is negative delta G, and the one that has negative delta G must be larger than the sum of the other two delta Gs. Now, if you're looking at these, instead of just memorizing which one has a positive or negative delta G, you can reason your way through it. Something has a negative delta G if the disorder or entropy is gonna increase. And there's a lot that goes into that besides just breaking things apart and, and building them up. But in general, if you imagine whether fewer larger things or many small things have greater entropy, then clearly the many small things have greater entropy because 
maximal entropy would be if everything disintegrated into the smallest possible components and maximally spread across, maximally spread across the entire universe or their entire potential range of movement. And it's way easier to spread things out when they're broken down than when they're built up. So as a general principle, even though the true reality is more complicated than this, as a general principle, we can say, if we're breaking things apart, it should have a negative delta G. And if we're building things up, it should have a positive delta G. And sure enough, that rule of thumb works perfectly here. We are breaking apart alpha ketoglutarate into a succinyl group and carbon dioxide, splitting things in two, sure enough, negative delta G. By contrast, we are joining the succinyl group to co coenzyme A together to make something larger, succinyl-CoA. Sure enough, positive delta G. And we are taking an electron and a hydrogen ion and NAD+, and we're gluing them together to form NADH. Sure enough, it has a positive delta G. So the first unforgettable thing about the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex is that it's a perfect illustration of the principle of enzymatic or energetic coupling. The second unforgettable thing about the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex is that it's a great illustration of a principle called substrate channeling. And this principle is when we put together complexes of enzymes in a very large system so that we can efficiently, efficiently channel one uh, substrate to the next in order to improve our efficiency and both from the perspective of improving the coupling of negative delta Gs to positive delta Gs, but also from the perspective of improving workflow. Now, let's first talk about how the three enzymes are arranged with respect to each other, and then how they're arranged in the overall complex. So first of all, recall that isocitrate dehydrogenase had a really easy time decarboxylating isocitrate because rather than engaging in a true decarboxylation reaction where what the enzyme is catalyzing is primarily ripping apart the molecule, what it actually did was catalyzed the oxidation of what became a carbonyl group in a position nearby the carboxyl group that led to a situation where we could exploit the relatively greater stability of the spontaneously decarboxylated compound. That was easy. And since it was easy to do, NAD plus could basically float along the edges of the isocitrate molecule and take away that electron. By contrast, what thiamine is accomplishing in the first enzyme of alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase is something a lot more complicated. So alpha-ketoglutarate, symbolized by the purple alpha, had to get attracted by the negatively charged carb anion of thiamine pyrophosphate. And the extra electron then had to reduce part of the alpha-ketoglutarate molecule so that the electron from a different position 
could then get sucked in by the positively charged nitrogen on thiamine. All of this stuff is really complicated, and in order to coordinate it, it has to take place very deep within the active site, in a deep pocket of the enzyme, so that the perfect structure can be coordinated around the molecule to hold everything in just the right position to make that happen. And in order to do that, you have to have TPP way in the deep pocket of this enzyme. Now, all of the shapes here are not truly to scale. They are simply a cartoonified presentation of the basic principles. So alpha-ketoglutarate is decarboxylated deep in the pocket of this enzyme. There's a flexible arm of lipoic acid that in the second step reaches into the deep pocket. And the oxidation of the intermediate that's left over, depicted as the purple S because it's going to become a succinyl group, the oxidation of that intermediate happens deep in the pocket of enzyme one. And then the succinyl group therein is transferred to the lipoyl group of the flexible arm of enzyme two. The flexible arm of enzyme two then bends around and reaches into its own deep pocket of its, of its own enzymatic self. And in that active site, it transfers the succinyl group to CoA, which itself is the succinylation of coenzyme A, and succinyl CoA then leaves. In the fourth step, the flexible arm of enzyme two reaches into enzyme three's deep pocketed active site so that the lipoyl group can then be oxidized by FAD, which is the cofactor made from riboflavin deep in the pocket of that enzyme. At that point, the lipoyl group of enzyme two is now oxidized, TPP has been regenerated, and the first two enzymes are fully functional. But FAD has been reduced to FADH2, and these two extra hydrogens and their electrons need to be loaded on NAD+, and the reduction of NAD+, allows the formation of NADH. Since this is diffusible, it can come in, pick up the electrons and hydrogen ions, and then leave. Now, you can see here that if all of these things need to take place deep within the enzyme, Lipoic acid's essential role is to be able on this flexible arm of E2 to reach into that pocket. Because if that weren't the case, for example, if these, what was in the process of becoming a succinyl group floated out of enzyme one to try to find lipoic acid over here, or to try to find its way into the third enzyme, then in this reaction, we're not efficiently coupling one step to the next step in a way that captures all the energy. Instead, we do a reaction here, much of that energy is going to get lost as heat by diffusing out here. So that energy needs to be transferred to something immediately. Remember, this is like, if the food is in your refrigerator, are you going to be able to cook it by turning the stove on? If there's a river running down the road and you build a power plant 
a mile away. Are you going to be able to capture that energy? No. So lipoic acid is an extra cofactor beyond everything else whose purpose is to be able to reach in there, capture all of the energy during that process, and then reach deep into the next enzyme so that no energy is lost and everything can be coordinated in an efficient and effective man's manner for the transfer from one reaction to the next. But we don't simply couple these three enzymes together on their own. We actually organize this into a massive complex of 48 enzymes. You can see on the right a picture of an electron micrograph taken of the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex. It's magnified 200,000 times, so you can imagine this thing is really small. The one thing that you can notice from it is that there are lots of individual units that are all bound together. And in fact, the way that we image this is as a cube-shaped structure that is made of independent spheres that are all bound together to one another. And within that substructure, there are 24 copies of the second enzyme. There's 12 copies of the first enzyme, and there's another 12 copies of the third enzyme. So the second unforgettable thing about the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex is that it's a great illustration of the principle of substrate channeling. The idea that rather than having enzymes floating around freely in the cell, we complex them together in large macrostructures. In this case, in a structure so large that it's less an enzyme or a group of enzymes, and it's more a massive enzymatic factory. And in this way, cells are organized in an extraordinary way to maximize efficiency in a way that humans would have a great difficulty trying to replicate ourselves. The third unforgettable thing about the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex is that it is an analog of the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. Alpha-KGDHC, or sometimes just called KGDHC, converts alpha-ketoglutarate to succinyl-CoA, and PDHC, the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, converts pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. There are three enzymes. The first two in each complex are analogs of one another. The third enzyme is actually exactly the same. Literally, the same protein from the same gene supports both complexes as enzyme three. And because of the remarkable similarities, then there's also remarkable similarities in the effective nutrition on each complex. In particular, thiamine only has a handful of roles in the body, and these are the two central roles in the breakdown of food molecules to produce ATP. Niacin and riboflavin are essential in the diet, but they have many roles in the breakdown of food to produce ATP. Lipoic acid is unique to these two in this context, but it's not required in the diet.
So these complexes require thiamine and the characteristic effects of thiamine on energy metabolism are largely due to the loss of function in these two complexes. Now, if you metabolize fat to produce ATP, you're going to produce acetyl-CoA that has to enter the citric acid cycle just as if you burn carbohydrate for energy. But when you burn carbohydrate for energy, you break glucose into two molecules of pyruvate, and then you use the PDHC to get acetyl-CoA that then enters the TCA cycle and is metabolized again by the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex. So fat only uses one of these complexes, carbohydrate uses both, and as such, burning carbohydrate for energy requires twice as much thiamine as fat. This is something that we'll come back to and talk about in much more detail later when we start talking about fat and carbohydrate metabolism. But for now, we can note that one of the effects of thiamine deficiency is gonna be carbohydrate intolerance and an ability to do better on a fat-based diet. But also, energy metabolism is gonna be sluggish in general because fat still requires thiamine for its metabolism. In addition to that, characteristic markers of thiamine deficiency are accumulation of alpha-ketoglutarate and pyruvate. We don't have very good markers of thiamine deficiency that are easily available. And you can look at thiamine blood levels, but if you can corroborate that with elevations of pyruvate and alpha-ketoglutarate on a urinary organic acids test, then that's gonna strengthen the interpretation of thiamine deficiency. But the interpretation of thiamine deficiency because of inhibition of these two complexes, is not airtight. And that's because the fourth unforgettable thing about the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex is that toxic compounds, well-established examples are arsenic and mercury, can bind to thiol groups, which are sulfhydryl groups, SH groups. And there are many toxic effects that fall into that category, but one of the key effects that falls into that category, and the one most relevant to breaking food molecules down to produce ATP, is to bind to the thiol groups of lipoic acid, thereby inhibiting the second enzyme of both multi-enzyme complexes. As an example on the screen, an arsenic compound known as arsenite is shown binding to lipoate through dehydration synthesis. The OH group of arsenite, there are two of them, bind to the H's of the sulfhydryl groups of lipoate, there are two of them, and these produce two molecules of water, all shown in purple. That's dehydration synthesis because water leaves, just like dehydration synthesis to form the uh, bonds between the acetyl group and CoA, for example. And what's left over is arsenite bound to lipoate. This lipoate is now covered up by the arsenite. It's not gonna be able to do any of its functions as enzyme two in either the pyruvate or the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complexes. And the metabolic disturbances as a, that are result from that are gonna be very similar to those of thiamine deficiency. And yet, that's not all. The fifth unforgettable thing about alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase 
is that oxidative stress and oxidative damage also hurt its activity. And the fifth unforgettable thing is even more unforgettable than the rest because this plays a really important role in neurodegeneration. But if you have neurodegeneration because of this principle, then the principle becomes very forgettable. So we want to make sure that we don't forget it early on so we can protect ourselves from neurodegeneration later in life. Now, what's particularly fascinating about this is that it can allow us to differentiate between oxidative stress and oxidative damage. If we define oxidative stress as any kind of stress on the system, meaning a perturbance in the system that allows things to change in adaptation, then we could say an example of oxidative stress would be if two hydrogen peroxide molecules produced, for example, by the electron transport chain under conditions of energy overload, oxidize the sulfhydryl groups of two molecules of glutathione and the two sulfhydryl groups of lipoate to produce a lipoate that's bound to two molecules of glutathione with the hydrogen peroxide now taking the four electrons in total here and four hydrogen ions to become four molecules of water, we will now wind up with a glutathionylated lipoyl group of enzyme two. We call this S-glutathionylation S because it's the sulfurs, the S's, that are bound to one another. S-glutathionylation is a modification that occurs under conditions of oxidative stress like so. And although it inhibits the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex, it plays a functional role for two reasons. First of all, the sulfhydryl groups are what are very very vulnerable to oxidative damage. If they form disulfide bonds, one S bound to the other S, disulfide, then now they're covered up. They're in the middle of this complex. And so if there are more oxidants around that could try to get at them, they're complex in a way that's protective. So by covering up the sulfhydryl groups, you protect lipoic acid but also you have reversibly inhibited the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex. Now it will not metabolize alpha-ketoglutarate temporarily. Before we talked about the inhibition of aconitase to stop the production of isocitrate in response to hydrogen peroxide. We didn't talk about isocitrate response to hydrogen peroxide, but it also is inhibited just to a lesser degree than aconitase. Similarly, alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase is inhibited to a lesser degree than aconitase, but it plays an important functional role because now you're not gonna get downstream metabolism bringing electrons from that molecule to the electron transport chain. And so that should relieve the stress on the electron transport chain. Hydrogen peroxide should then fall back down to normal. For all of, the, all of these reasons, as well as the adaptive effects of hydrogen peroxide in the cytosol, like inhibiting glucose entry into the cell and fatty acid uptake into the mitochondrion. 
all of these things are working in concert to relieve the burden on the electron transport chain and help restore the system to normal, to remove the oxidative stress. When that happens, then reductive enzymes can then break apart that bond and reproduce lipoic acid in its reduced form and glutathione in its reduced form, and everything operates as normal. Oxidative stress is partly a response to prevent oxidative damage. The whole antioxidant system functions to try to minimize oxidative damage, which is the irreversible or much more difficult to reverse alterations that occur to really important molecules in the cell. Polyunsaturated fatty acids in cell membranes are uniquely vulnerable among all fatty acids to a process called lipid peroxidation, which is a form of oxidative damage. And one of the byproducts of lipid peroxidation is hydroxynoninal, or HNE. HNE can also bind to the sulfhydryl groups of lipoic acid to produce an adduct. But it's much more difficult to reverse that. If it's reversible at all, it's probably reversible by removing the lipoic acid group and putting another lipoic acid group that's not damaged back on that enzyme 2 molecule. Suffice it to say that it's much more difficult to reverse, and this inhibition is much more long-term, and it's therefore much more damaging. So the adaptation of esglutathionylation to oxidative stress is a way not only to minimize hydrogen peroxide production, but it's also a way of protecting much greater damage to the lipoic acid molecule that's harder to reverse. So what's the role of this in neurodegeneration? Well, we know that people with Alzheimer's disease have lower alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase activity. And we know that among people with Alzheimer's disease, the greater the reduction in alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase activity, the greater the degree of cognitive decline. Investigators have tried to work out with experiments in mice whether this is protective or harmful. And what they found is that if you have short-term inhibition of alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, for example, as you would expect to occur with glutathionylation of the lipoic acid moiety of enzyme 2 under conditions of oxidative stress, then that will protect against neurodegeneration because you're removing the incoming electrons that are going to overburdened mitochondrias that are producing lots of reactive oxygen species. So by inhibiting the complex, you lower the level of reactive oxygen species. But if you inhibit it over the long term, then something really detrimental eventually occurs, which is that if the citric acid cycle is inhibited, how are you going to make ATP? So if you're chronically starving the brain of energy, then that is eventually going to cause serious problems for the brain. And so we can posit that in someone with Alzheimer's, probably alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase at some point was inhibited in a protective manner. 
But the chronic stress on the system eventually led not only to long-term glutathionylation that wouldn't be reversed as easily and a slowdown of energy metabolism as a result, but oxidative stress that cumulatively just damaged the enzyme in a way that chronically causes a deficiency of energy in the brain. Understanding these mechanisms is super important because it allows us to posit potential therapeutic options around repleting thiamine levels in the brain, or removing metal or arsenic, or protecting against oxidative stress more broadly with the many different nutrients that we could say are related to that system. If you want a broad view of the antioxidant system, head to chrismasterjohnphd.com antioxidant, where I give you 14 lessons all about it. The sixth unforgettable thing about the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex is that its product, succinyl-CoA, also enters the citric acid cycle through the metabolism of odd-chain fatty acids and certain amino acids, and it also provides a way of diagnosing vitamin B12 deficiency. If you look at acetyl-CoA, you can see that there's one, two carbons. There's a closely related molecule, propionyl-CoA, that has one, two, three carbons. Propionyl-CoA is really important as a product of fatty acids that have an odd number of carbons. So palmitic acid, or palmitate, is 16 carbons, and you can break it into eight acetyl-CoA. But margaric acid, or margarate, is a 17-carbon fatty acid. It's got one extra carbon. The way you deal with that, because you can't break it into a certain number of acetyl-CoA, you need an even number of carbons to produce a certain number of two-carbon molecules. The way you get around that is you produce seven acetyl-CoA and one propionyl-CoA. Seven times two is 14, plus three, is 17. Now, odd-chain fatty acids are not very common. They're produced by microbes, and probably in the diet, the main source is dairy products because they're being produced in the rumen of dairy-producing animals. There are also four amino acids that generate propionyl-CoA in their metabolism, and we'll talk about them in much more detail at a later time when we talk about breaking down protein for energy, but if you're eager to know what they are, they're isoleucine, valine, threonine, and methionine. Whether we get propionyl-CoA from odd-chain fatty acids or from certain amino acids, we convert it into methylmalonyl-CoA. And in a vitamin B12-dependent process, we produce succinyl-CoA. Since vitamin B12 is required for the conversion of methylmalonyl-CoA to succinyl-CoA, then in vitamin B12 deficiency, two detrimental things happen. Succinyl-CoA is produced at a lower rate. You can produce it from alpha-ketoglutarate, but you can't produce it from methylmalonyl-CoA. So the entry of succinyl-CoA into the citric acid cycle is reduced, and that causes lower levels of energy production. But also, methylmalonyl-CoA accumulates. And... We don't really know exactly why that's harmful, 
probably methylmalonyl accumulating has toxic effects in itself. But also, if succinyl-CoA enters the citric acid cycle, or if acetyl-CoA does, CoA leaves in the next step, and CoA is free to circulate in the cells and participate in energy metabolism. If you have a metabolite that should enter the cycle and doesn't, then CoA is stuck on the methylmalonyl group. If that accumulates enough, you have depletion of the CoA pool, and that itself will result in a failure of energy metabolism, potentially of catastrophic proportions, because it's not just the citric acid cycle that uses CoA, but many other systems of anabolism and catabolism. In fact, safely excreting nitrogen in the urine as urea so that you don't get ammonia accumulating in the system, which is catastrophically toxic to the central nervous system, itself requires coenzyme A in ways that we'll talk about later when we talk about protein metabolism. So if you have depletion of the CoA pool, in bad cases, you can actually get accumulation of ammonia. Lots of bad things can happen in this case. But from a diagnostic perspective, the accumulation of methylmalonyl-CoA is interesting because most of the time it indicates vitamin B12 deficiency. In rare occasions, it can indicate a severe genetic disorder in this enzyme. But most of the time, if you want to know if you are deficient in vitamin B12, the most specific functional marker you can look at is the excretion of methylmalonyl in the blood or the urine. Since it's easily excreted in the urine, 24-hour urine is best to include along with blood levels, rather than just a blood level or just a spot check of urine. The seventh unforgettable thing about the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex is that its product, succinyl-CoA, is also used to synthesize heme, which is an important part of a number of things, but among them, hemoglobin, the protein that transports oxygen in our blood. In this process, eight succinyl-CoA provide most of the carbons to the molecule, and eight glycine provides some of the carbons and all of the nitrogens. Vitamin B6 is used to transfer amino groups, and amino groups are part of what's being transferred from glycine. And so vitamin B6 plays an essential role in creating eight molecules of delta-amino-levulinic acid, or delta-amino-levulinate. And these molecules then undergo many steps to produce one molecule of heme. Now, vitamin B6 deficiency can result in anemia, and this is the primary reason why. In this form of anemia, you could have plenty of iron, but it doesn't get incorporated into heme. And you can actually look at the red blood cells in a microscope and see the iron accumulating around the edges of the molecule, of the edges of the cell, because it's not being incorporated into the heme. And that's called sideroblastic anemia. There's also a rare genetic disorder that massively increases the need for this enzyme, which is delta-amino-levulinic acid synthetase, for vitamin B6. And although it's a genetic disorder, 
90% of the time it can be treated with very large doses of vitamin B6. If we combine the sixth and seventh unforgettable things about the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex, we can make them even more unforgettable because we can fit them into the big picture of what we've been looking at. In the citric acid cycle that we've seen so far, acetyl-CoA joins the oxaloacetate to produce citrate in a multi-step reaction in which CoA leaves. Citrate is converted to isocitrate by aconitase, and isocitrate is converted to alpha-ketoglutarate by isocitrate dehydrogenase. Alpha-ketoglutarate is the exit point for the synthesis of glutamate from the TCA cycle. It's also the entry point by which glutamate can enter the cycle. The product of the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase reaction is succinyl-CoA. It's the exit point by which we synthesize heme, and it's also the entry point for odd-chain fatty acids and certain amino acids, namely isoleucine, valine, threonine, and methionine. Then through many steps we haven't talked about yet, or a handful of steps we haven't talked about yet, succinyl-CoA is converted to oxaloacetate. Oxaloacetate is the exit point for aspartate, or the entry point by which aspartate can enter the citric acid cycle. And this shows how the citric acid cycle serves as a rotary or traffic circle to allow a metabolic hub in which not only energy production happens, but also the interconversion of various metabolic substrates and the intersection of various metabolic pathways. Now, even this leaves something crazy here that doesn't quite yet make sense. If coenzyme A is the train that drops the acetyl group off at the citric acid cycle, why on earth does it come back during the production of succinyl-CoA? Just to leave again in the next step? That, my friends, will remain a mystery until the next lesson in which that shroud of mystery will forever be removed. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. If you want to continue watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn or on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn or on my website at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash biochemistry. All right, I hope you enjoyed this lesson and found it useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Master John, and I will see you in the next lesson.